The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Ms. Brenda Davis. She is a fellow registered dietitian and one of the leading plant-based diet pioneers and advocates. She is an award-winning author of many books, an internationally acclaimed speaker, and widely regarded as a rock star of plant-based nutrition. Ms. Davis has been featured at medical, nutrition, and dietetic conferences in over 20 countries on five continents. Her most interesting adventures include a personal consult and lecture for a member of the royal family in Saudi Arabia, a lifestyle intervention demonstration project for the medical community in Lithuania, and serving as the lead dietitian in a diabetes intervention research project in the Marshall Islands. She is based in Alberta, Canada. We are going to be talking today about her latest book, co-authored with Vasanto Molina and Corey Davis. It's titled Plant-Powered Protein, Nutrition Essentials and Dietary Guidelines for All Ages. Welcome, Brenda. Oh, it is such a privilege to be back with you, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for that beautiful introduction as well. Well, you're welcome. You've done remarkable work in the field. And your latest book is another great tool for those of us who recognize an urgent need to make a change in our diet, not only for personal health, but also for the planet. But before we dive into this book, I'd like for you to tell our listeners how you became dedicated to plant-based eating. Did you grow up in a vegetarian home? Oh, so far from it. (laughs) I grew up in a very omnivorous home with a French-Canadian father, and we were in Germany while I was growing up. My favorite food was Wiener schnitzel, (laughs) so that's breaded veal cutlets fried in butter. So it was not until I was a teenager that I started to kind of look at the bigger picture of my life and started thinking about the impact of my choices on other people, on animals, on the planet. And I just was inching towards a vegetarian diet. And then when I went to university, wow, vegetarian diets were just considered risky, if not downright dangerous. So, you know, I was a little cautious at that stage. But then when I became a dietitian, and this is we're talking back in the 70s here, that I was in university and, and then in the early 80s, when I started practicing, and I kept gravitating in the direction of plants. And I was always had my nose in research, I just had to make the change. I thought I can't justify not choosing a diet that's lower on the food chain. It makes so much sense for the planet. I don't like CAFOs or confined animal feeding operations. I don't like hurting animals. I don't like causing them pain, suffering, and death. 
And so I just thought, I have no excuses. I'm a dietitian. I can figure out how to put together a really healthy plant-based diet. And so I became completely plant-based in about 1989. And so when you say completely plant-based, I believe you are a vegan, but there are different stages of plant-based eating. And I think any steps people can make towards a more plant-based whole food diet will do them a great service. But do we want to explain the vegetarian diets versus a vegan one? Oh, absolutely. So as you mentioned, there are lots of variations on plant-based and a plant-based diet is just a diet that's mostly plants. Some plant-based diets are lacto-ovo-vegetarian and lacto means milk and ovo means eggs. So they're meat-free diets that do include dairy products and eggs. And then A vegan diet excludes all animal products completely. So there's no dairy, no eggs. And that's sort of what we would consider a 100% plant-based diet. But many people who eat plant-based, like people in the blue zones, for example, are eating a predominantly plant-based diet as opposed to an exclusively plant-based diet. Right. And for our listeners, those blue zones equate with populations who have long lives. So if we're looking to eat for longevity, the blue zone research is very interesting. It is. And Melinda, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about the blue zones is not only do they have more centenarians or more people that reach 100 years of age than anywhere else in the world, but what's really interesting is even at these advanced ages, people are still productive and healthy. So looking at the amount of years that you have that are healthy years is higher in the blue zones. Right. Well, there are so many relationships between highly processed diets, mostly low fiber, highly processed grains and sugars, and dementia and type 2 diabetes, So it makes sense that a person would retain their mental abilities better when they're eating more plants. Absolutely. All right. I love this latest book of yours because it dives into a lot of misconceptions. And I wanted to touch on those with you because you've been teaching vegetarian and vegan styles of eating for so many years. What do you see as the biggest misconceptions? Well, I think the biggest misconceptions where protein is concerned is that you can't get enough protein from plants. And this misconception is hardwired into a lot of people because it's drilled in over and over and over again that animal products are the sources of protein and that plant foods provide inferior quality of protein. You can't digest it. You can't get all the essential amino acids you need. And of course, this isn't true. And one of the things that people just need to think about is the largest animals on the planet, if you think of elephants and rhinoceroses and hippopotamuses and giraffes and gorillas, and you know, these animals are essentially herbivores. They get their protein from plants and they manage to build huge muscles, way bigger than human muscles on just by eating plants. And of course, so can we, and many people do. And as a matter of fact, There are a lot of vegan bodybuilders and vegan elite athletes and so forth. The thing that people need to know is that every single one of the nine essential amino acids 
that we use to make protein in our bodies are produced by plants. So whether we get them directly from plants or indirectly by eating animals or very indirectly by eating animals that ate other animals, those animals ate plants to, to get those essential amino acids to start with. So we can bypass the animals and just get the essential amino acids directly from plants. Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned the years during which you were receiving your dietetics education, because I was the same in the 70s. And there were a lot of misconceptions back then that we had to say combine protein sources. So you wanted to have beans with rice because you would complement some of the amino acids that might be low in one food and higher in another. But we've learned over the years that 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 doesn't have to be. No, exactly. And then what people need to know is that that came about in the probably 70s, 80s, when with diet for a small planet, when what is true is that grains tend to be low in lysine, beans, some maybe slightly low in methionine and cysteine. And thinking that we have to get all of these essential amino acids at once, it seemed to make sense. Well, if you combine the two grains and beans, you'll get all of those essential amino acids. But what people didn't realize is that we have these amino acid pools in our body. And so if all you ate was grains at one meal, you would store the excess methionine and cysteine. And then all you eat is lentils at another, you would store the excess lysine and you just draw on the pools as you need. And so what we've learned is that if people eat a variety of plant foods over the course of the day, they get all the essential amino acids they need just so long as they're eating enough calories and getting enough calories isn't a huge challenge in the developed world. We certainly don't have to worry about that. Right. Well, and I also think that for some the idea of eating a vegetarian diet might be going through the drive-through and getting everything except the burger. You know, you'd still have the highly processed yeah. fries and a shake. And that's really not what we're talking about. No. And in fact, people that tend to do that often, you know, teenagers who are wanting to go vegetarian or vegan for ethical reasons, they often do exactly what you're talking about. They just drop the meat and they get that double order of fries or the burger without the meat or whatever. And they can actually end up without sufficient protein for their basic needs. And, you know, we see a lack of protein in two groups. One is the junk food eaters who just aren't consuming decent sources of protein, but also in people that eat mostly fruit. Fruit is probably not going to provide sufficient protein. And then, of course, people that aren't getting enough calories for whatever reason, anorexia or illness or something like that. Right. Well, I love this particular book because you've got charts showing how much protein is in different plant-based foods, but then you also show how do we calculate our protein needs. And I think another myth, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems that people overestimate how much protein they need, even for people who need higher amounts. And those would be pregnant and lactating women. It would be seniors because of the natural muscle wasting that occurs as we age and some athletes. But even in those higher protein need groups, you can still easily meet protein needs through a plant-based diet. 
Oh, absolutely. A lot of people don't realize that the RDA or the recommended dietary allowance is set at about 25% higher than average biological requirements. And they are meant to meet the needs of nearly everyone, about 97 to 98% of healthy people. And so if you actually get the RDA, and, and many people think we need, you know, 80 or 100 grams of protein a day, but the RDA for men is 56 grams. And for women, it's 46 grams. Of course, that's based on a reference body weight. But essentially, we need about 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight, giving us that sort of padding to make sure that we're getting what we need, that everyone's getting what they need. So it's way less than what most people think it is. And you also provide an easy chart of calculations because protein levels on food labels are listed as grams. And we often see our body weight listed as kilograms, but we speak in terms of pounds. How many pounds do I weigh? And so you simply provide a little equation. So we take our body weight, we divide it by 2.2, That gives us our kilogram body weight. And then we just multiply that by 0.8 to give us how many grams of protein we need. And then we can start looking at food labels to get an idea of how much protein we're getting per serving. But you also have charts that are very easy to navigate to see, wow, these beans are really high in protein. Or look at these grains and see how they differ. But I think the take-home message here and you can describe what you hope people get from this book. But for me, what I walked away with was it's really easy to meet our protein needs through plant-based foods. Yes. And you know, what's interesting, we often think of our needs in terms of the number of grams per kilogram body weight, but we can also think of it in terms of the percentage of protein that we need. And generally human beings need about 10 to 15% of calories from protein. And if you think of it that way, soy foods are about 35 to 45% of calories from protein. Other legumes are about 20 to 30% of calories from protein. Uh, Non-starchy vegetables can have anywhere from 10 to 40% of calories from protein. Seeds are probably 10 to 25% of calories from protein. Grains, 7 to 17. Nuts, probably 8 to 14 almost all foods have more than 10% of calories from protein. The only exceptions are fruits at about two to 12% and starchy vegetables, they hover around the 10%, probably around seven to 12. But if you're eating a mix of whole foods and they're plant foods, if you're getting enough calories, it's really difficult not to get enough protein. Right. Let me take a break because we're about halfway through. And I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Brenda Davis. She is a registered dietitian, a leading plant-based expert, and her new book is Plant-Powered Protein, Nutrition Essentials and Dietary Guidelines for All Ages. Brenda, one of the chapters that I really appreciated in your book is the politics of protein. And I can remember back when I was a dietetic intern And the Dairy Council came to speak to our class and told us all the marvels of dairy products. And still, if we go to our national conference of dietitians, of course, there are practice groups that focus specifically on plant-based diets, but most of the vendors who are there exhibiting, if they represent the meat industries, 
they're going to sing the praises of their animal protein foods and make us think that, yeah, these are essential in our diet. And even if we look at our own dietary guidelines, both in the United States and Canada, they tend to promote or speak about the benefits of eating meat. Yeah, well, you know, Melinda, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with the new Canada's food guide. I'm um, not. Yeah, so we actually got a new food guide in 2019. And it is revolutionary. So this food guide is a plate, half the plate is fruits and vegetables, a quarter of the plate is whole grains, and another quarter of the plate is protein foods. And the protein foods include definitely meat and fish and poultry and all of those things and dairy products. There's no separate group for dairy products in Canada's food guide. We're told to drink water and rely on a variety of foods for protein, but the emphasis is on plant protein. So Canada's food guide suggests that we get plant sources of protein every day and we make plant protein choices the priority and that we need very little protein generally contrast to what people think. And so it is a very, very plant-friendly guide. It works for plant-exclusive eaters, for plant-predominant eaters, and there is a big push for making plant protein sources your predominant protein choices. I think you have a picture of that in this book. I was looking at it in preparation for our interview, but I didn't realize that this was a Canadian plant-based plate. And it's fantastic. There isn't a specific place that emphasizes cow-based dairy. It's calcium-rich foods. Yes, but I think this might be our own food guide in here, not Canada's food guide. Oh, okay. That's our own food guide with the calcium-rich foods. Now, in Canada's food guide, we don't have a group for calcium-rich foods. It's just simply a plate, half the plate being fruits and vegetables, a quarter being grains, and a quarter being protein foods with a little cup beside the guide saying, drink water. I don't know about you, but I love to look at different countries' food recommendations. Oh, me too. <laughs> it really puts a different spin on how we can eat for health, but eat just a little bit differently. I have but to tell you that one of the reasons that our food guide came out as it did was because Health Canada promised Canadians that they would not allow industry influence in the formation of the guide, that it would be entirely evidence-based. Wow. That probably won't happen here in the United States unless we have some serious campaign finance reform. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sad when politics enters health recommendations because what that means is that people then don't trust recommendations and we need to have a health authority to help guide us to eat well. So congratulations to Canada for rejecting industry influence. Yeah, it was wonderful. And we had many opportunities to provide input as well, which of course we did, Basanto and myself. And I think it made a difference. So we're very proud of the New Canada's Food Guide. Yeah. Well, I will provide a link to that for our listeners too, just so we can have a little bit of a different perspective to see how different meal plans might look. Yeah, All right. Great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. So yeah. another point of controversy 
has to do with supplements and athletes. It's a big area of misconception. I don't know how many young athletes I used to work with in the high schools who took some kind of whey protein powder. And of course, whey comes from dairy, but they were spending lots of money on these big plastic jugs of whey protein. And you're saying, nope, you can save your money. We don't need to do that. We can still have big muscle mass. Yeah. And the reality that, again, a lot of people forget is that athletes tend to eat a lot of calories. So if you think of an athlete who eats 3000 calories a day, if they needed even 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram body weight, and they weighed 70 kilograms, they'd need about 100, you know, 105 grams of protein. Well, on 3000 calories, that's only 14% of calories from protein that's relatively easy to achieve on a very nutritious plant-based diet without a lot of excess oil and sugar and all of those things. If they're eating whole foods, they'll get that quite easily. And some athletes love to have a smoothie to refuel after activity. But in fact, you don't have to add protein powders to the smoothie. You can add hemp seeds and frozen peas and soft tofu, soy milk, or you can add whole foods and get a little protein boost that way as well. Right. And when we think about the kinds of advertising and marketing that's directed to people who want to build muscle mass, I think we've just been conditioned to think of meat and we can thank industry marketing for that. Oh, absolutely. And you know, we have some pretty interesting studies that show that plant-based protein can be just as good as animal-based protein for building and maintaining muscle mass. And the most recent study actually came out in 2023, where they reported very comparable protein synthesis rates, skeletal muscle growth in those that were consuming high protein omnivorous or non-animal sources of protein. It just didn't make a difference. What made a difference was the amount of protein that they were consuming and they just had to be consuming enough, that's it. We have a number of other studies prior to that as well that have compared soy protein to animal protein and finding very similar muscle gains and strength as what people would get from animal proteins. You also have a very interesting section in this book about mortality rates and the prolongation of life just by giving up meat and switching over to nutritious whole plant-based foods. And with regard to specific chronic diseases, we think about type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer being three big ones that affect those of us living in North America. What is it about meat in particular that contributes to those diseases? I love that you brought this up because, you know, when you think about it and you compare animal protein versus plant protein, it's really quite simple. The food components that we know are most protective to health, like fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and pre and probiotics and plant sterols and stanols and things like that are either high or very high in legumes, and they're basically absent in meat. And the things that we know that are more pathogenic or harmful to health, like saturated fats and trans fatty acids and new 5GC, which is a pro inflammatory molecule in meat and all the precursors of TMAO and pro-oxidants like heme iron and endotoxins and all of these things are negligible in legumes and they're either moderate or high in meat. So it just makes sense 
And when we look at mortality data, we see that people getting their protein from plants live longer and have less of all the chronic diseases you mentioned. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about what's in these foods. So for me, there are a lot of things that are problematic. Right. Getting back to the politics of this, you made a really important point. You say health experts tell us to avoid certain foods, but those are the same foods that get massive subsidies. Now, I can say that that's true in the United States. Is that also true in Canada? Oh, absolutely. And there was a study that came out of Berkeley in 2015, or a paper, I should say, a report that showed that if meat wasn't subsidized in the United States, a pound of hamburger would cost $30. Wow. And so it's huge subsidies for meat. And I think this is such a big mistake because we're subsidizing the foods that are contributing to increased mortality and morbidity. And that's not what we should be doing. We should be, if anything, subsidizing plant foods. Exactly. And you also mentioned that more than 50% of the calories in the U.S. diet come from federally subsidized foods. That means our tax dollars support the kinds of foods that are making us sick. Absolutely. Well, you've got recipes to back up all of the reasons why we should be eating less meat, less dairy, and more plant-based foods. And I think that that's helpful because when we do want to make a shift in our diet, sometimes it's hard to know where to get started. What would you tell our listeners who want to start making a shift? How would you nudge them along? Well, and this I found very helpful for myself. I would rely on some of the expertise of the people around the world that actually know how to cook legumes and make them taste phenomenal. So you'd get inspired when you think about how people in Central and Southern America use pinto beans and black beans. And in India, the lentils and chickpeas. And, you know, in the Middle East, the fava beans and white beans. And in Asia, the soybeans and red beans. And in Africa, the pigeon peas and lentils and cow peas. And so we really can learn from other cultures, for sure. We just have a minute. Is there anything you want our listeners to know that we might not have touched on? Well, I would say that it just makes sense for the human population, when you think of the bigger picture, to source protein from plants rather than animals. I think sourcing protein from animals is not only unnecessary, but it increases our risk of death and disease. And it is also, which we didn't talk a lot about, one of the biggest contributors to climate change and environmental degradation. And of course, it contributes remarkably to horrible suffering of animals. And so by choosing plants, we're taking such great strides to improve the future for our children and our grandchildren. So I, I really think it's become both an ethical and ecological imperative to make choices that better support the health of ourselves and the planet. I love the way you say that. It's an ecological and ethical imperative. And you do have a good section in this book to describe the different demands and drains on our ecosystem and natural resources, depending on how we eat. So all the way around, this is excellent. Brenda, we are out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Brenda Davis. She is a registered dietitian and one of the leading plant-based diet pioneers and advocates. And her latest book is titled Plant-Powered Protein, Nutrition Essentials and Dietary Guidelines for All Ages. And I would add, and for the planet. So thank you for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Melinda. It's always such a pleasure.